Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. You know, we are colonized through literature and our resistance to that, I think, has a capacity to be literary. We are not in a post-colonial society in Australia. The invaders are still here. They've never left. Hi, I'm Zoya Patel. I'm a writer and editor. And welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. In this episode, I speak to writer Evelyn Araluen about her poetry collection, Drop Bear. Earlier in the year, Evelyn won the Stella Prize, which is one of Australia's biggest literary awards for women and non-binary writers. Drop Bear is about the stories we tell ourselves, especially children, about the Australian landscape and belonging. Evelyn is a Bundjalung descendant who was born and raised on Darug country. She grew up in a home full of books, but she only started writing poetry in recent years when she started learning her grandfather's language, Bundjalung. So that's where we started our conversation. Thanks so much, Evelyn, for making time for this. I'm super excited to talk to you after reading Drop Bear. No worries. Happy to be here. So I'm just going to kick straight off with the first question. In your collection, you have a poem titled Learning Bundjalung on Tharawal. Um, You write in that poem about using old words from old country. Can you tell me a bit about the poem and the experiences that you're describing there? Yeah, so... um... The poem was actually the very first poem I ever wrote and in a very technical way it was my assignment for Certificate 1 of Bundjalung Language Studies, which I was um, studying at Eora College, the Aboriginal TAFE in um, Redfern. And I had started wanting to study my great-grandfather's language uh, kind of for a multitude of reasons, you know, reconnecting with those histories that uh, haven't been as active in my family for the last couple of generations because of, you know, because of dispossession and displacement. So um, the poem is is really just about the experience of learning language when you're not on that country. Can you tell us where Bundjalung country is? Yeah, so Bundjalung is uh, northern New South Wales, um, sort of along uh, along the coast just under the Queensland border. So I was living at the time in Darug country, western Sydney, but I was spending a lot of time in Darug country and, you know, I would sit with my dictionary and I would sit and try and identify different birds um, first, you know, through my own kind of like knowledge of what the birds are and then finding them in the dictionary and moving through the place um, with an eye towards writing and with an eye towards language. Um, And, you know, it it turned out to be um, a really enriching experience. I hadn't ever like fancied myself a poet, to be honest. Um, I liked writing, but Poetry always just seems like something that people who were much smarter than me did. And, you know, uh, from that very first poem, here we are. So I guess it is a great advertisement for TAFEs and uh, an indication that they need to be better funded. There are so many interesting things that you've just said. 
I wonder what it was like to be learning language in that academic setting in contrast to the other, you know, cultural knowledge that you would have gained through just being raised and being Aboriginal. What kind of lens did you take into that and how was it different? So normally I would sort of say that the kind of academic and institutionalisation of any kind of cultural context or knowledge, particularly in situations of marginalisation, like really leads to quite explicit imbalances of power, you know, the kind of the dominant settler colony taking over those representations and recasting them and reformulating them for whatever image suits their own motives best. But in this particular instance with TAFE, with Eora College, um, it was such a it was such a notable difference. And that comes from the fact that, you know, we were being taught by Aboriginal people, everyone who was working in that system was Aboriginal um, and, you know, had their own experiences and cultural contexts that informed their academic leading and, and learning. And so it was a really unique experience where learning language was not situated as like a sort of a process of proficiency, more so it was actually really about drawing our attention to the process and drawing our attention to the experiences that we learned along this pathway, either reconnecting with our, you know, with that part of our Bundjalung culture or with remembering and returning to things that might have been, you know, diminished in different life experiences and passing of older relatives and such. In that poem you wrote, we're relearning this place through poetry. So how did learning language open up writing poetry to you? And has anything changed in the way that you write as a result of having that knowledge of language? Yeah, I think... um Ultimately, learning language just did something really transformative to my brain that has, you know, permeated every other sort of form of communication. Um, Something became unstuck in my own head about grammar in particular um, and word order. So Aboriginal languages have a very different sense of cultural value which informs the ordering of words and the different grammatical structures uh, like the sort of the most obvious thing is that land is something that is given a sort of a grammatical significance in the same way that in English the I subject, the human subject, um, is in a good English sentence is always dominating and is always um, first and foremost uh, in the sentence and is organising the structure of everything else that unfolds, whereas in Bundjalung it starts with the land, it starts with jargon, and so you always have to kind of like you wouldn't say like, I'm from Bundjalung country, you would say Bundjalung country from I. And that kind of cultural displacement did something in my own brain about thinking about language and thinking about the different ways in which we can still work within the English tradition uh, because those are the tools that we were given and um, they are actually a part of our inheritance, even if it's a reluctant inheritance, and we deserve the right to be able to, to challenge and undermine and experiment with them. Um, but yeah, poetry um, is particularly interested in that form of experimentation and is particularly adapt for play and thinking through forms of play with that new knowledge in my head about grammar and about language and place. I think poetry kind of came quite naturally from that experience. You paint a really vivid picture of your upbringing and your family life in Drop Bear and especially in the essay To the Parents. And writing seems like it was a big part of your childhood. What were the books that your parents chose for you when you were a child? 
Well, so anyone who's sort of had a look at, at Drop Bear would sort of see the the mark of some of those famous Australian works like the May Gibbs book, Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie, Blinky Bill, uh, Dot and the Kangaroo, um, Norman Lindsay. So we had a lot of those Australian classics that were kind of always around because they were quite easily accessible. They were quite affordable to to access and my parents really did as much as possible want us to have visions of Australian landscape. I don't know, they were they really didn't like America. We did have, you know, we did have a strong emphasis on kids' books, on young adult books. And I know a lot of a lot of parents can sometimes like look down on those books and really try and force their kids out of those kinds of interests quite early on. But my parents are actually super encouraging of Harry Potter and Lemony Snicket and books that were really kind of like designed for young people and and read them themselves as well, which I think was was really good. But um, yeah, I just, I ended up being the little nerd and sort of was constantly going through my dad's books and was constantly asking for ideas and suggestions for things to read. Uh, I had really my only kind of idea of poetry was from this sort of tattered and frayed copy of, it was an anthology called Romantic and Victorian Poetry. And it was just straight up ye old English stuff. And I read it all a million, a million, a million times um, and thought that's what poetry was as as a result. And my relationship to those texts is still, you know, like I still enjoy pretty much all of them. You know, you have this kind of like nostalgic relationship with books that shaped your upbringing um, that is, you know, for whatever it's problematic, it's, they can actually be quite difficult to, to disentangle from. Um, and I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed reading those and continue to enjoy reading them. I just also am now in a situation where I can understand that they're deeply problematic. So some listeners might not have actually grown up reading stories of Blinky Bill or Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie or Dot and the Kangaroo. What were those stories about? So it's really interesting looking back at them now because a lot of those narratives are actually incredibly dark. Um, many of them are loosely described in this period that we call the Federation period of Australian literature, which was not explicitly 1901. It's texts that were kind of from about the 20 years prior to Federation and the kind of leading up to this nationalist conversation, this nationalist event about establishing Australia not simply as a collection of colonies but actually as a unified nation. And that's the context of like Edith Pedley's Dot and the Kangaroo, which was epitomising this narrative of the lost white child in the bush. Um, and that's a kind of a, a reoccurring trope quite extensively throughout a lot of literature. You see um, you see it emerging in texts like Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, which is a novel set in that Federation period. Um, it's one of those very interesting stories for me about um, that reveal this sort of strange settler psyche that displaces other forms of guilt and um, grief and kind of projects them onto, onto white bodies so that they get to feel anxious about a thing that they're actually doing to other people. So, um, you know, with Dot and the Kangaroo, this nice, nice little white baby girl goes missing off of a colonial homestead and is rescued by this lovely talking kangaroo who tells her of how horrible all of the Aborigines are and how, you know, she must protect, she must protect this little girl from the Aborigines and it's really pretty messed up. Um, that's one of the more explicitly 
uh, aggressive and violent one, as are um, Snugglepot and Cuddlepie, which has quite a lot of quite violent scenes, a lot of um, inter-animal um, hostility apparently, particularly between uh, Mr Lizard and uh, the Kookaburra. I don't know. They didn't get on. So uh, many of these narratives are kind of set in this um, very threatening and hostile wilderness of the Australian bush. And sometimes there's a sense of play, like in Blinky Bill, where all of the adventures are mostly relatively harmless and are mostly about kind of speaking to this loosely articulated environmental message. It's basically like, you know, deforestation is not great and we probably shouldn't try and run over wildlife in our cars. But that was always kind of the extent of the environmental message. Um Dot and the Kangaroo began with this message of uh, this is a book for all of the good little children and also for the land whose who's destruction we're surely um, bringing upon. So very much like this kind of um, anti-urbanisation anxiety. Um, but at the heart of most of these books is about creating the idea that little Australian children are larrikin, charming spirits who, um, you know, have inherited this sprawling and dangerous bush and are to have all kinds of wonderful adventures in it once they conquer that hostility and assert their human sovereignty over the land. Um, and I'm not exaggerating, though. that's really the narrative. And it was important because it was a part of the idea of nation building and building an idea of the federated state. So it makes sense. It's just not a legacy that sits easily or comfortably with the histories of sovereign Aboriginal peoples who've been dispossessed from their land. So why did you want to feature those kind of iconic Australian children's fiction characters in Drop Bear? Part of it was, I think, coming to terms with my own relationship with them and the, the nostalgic kind of hold they have over me. So I was interested in my own reaction and the way in which my kind of nostalgic drive was in fact kind of consolidating um, an acceptance and the place for these, like even a sort of a justification for these texts in a way that was not at all commensurate with my political sensibilities, but that was essentially just kind of driven by an aesthetic impulse. Um, and I was interested in that. I wanted to try and understand that and formulate my own response to that quite effectively and to, as well to be honest about the entanglement that we do feel about problematic histories and contexts. Um, and part of it was also that I was seeing that history, that literary history, that nationalist iconography and all of its different images and associations being reconstituted and reappropriated in these trends of Australiana, whether that be in poetry or whether that be in dresses at Gorman or tea towels. Like I was seeing this kind of really explicit constitution of Australian native wildflowers and animals as somehow now aesthetically trendy and appealing. And there was no ironization. There was no interrogation of that. There was no questioning of the way in which a tradition that um, was really used for the establishment and assertion of nation was being used now at a very different period of our history. And people who were supposedly quite progressive would unironically just recuperate all of these aesthetics without questioning what their 
claims might be. Like what does it mean to adore Snugglepot and Cardle Pie, which is a book about essentially asserting that the white human occupants of Australia are their sovereign owners and they're, it's about displacing Aboriginality and reimagining Australia as a white nation. You know, what does it mean to buy a tea towel or an expensive dress with those faces printed on it? And to never question those histories because apparently what, they're far away enough now that we can nostalgically recuperate them. We don't have to question them. So, you know, I found that I found that reemergence quite interesting and was essentially really searching for a language of critique there. And I guess it raises the question of how do you untangle the very genuine positive associations you might have with those, um, you know, texts that formed quite a big part of your childhood or that have that nostalgic link to a period of time in your life with that very necessary political critique as well. And I know that you write later in the collection about a kind of middle place that you sometimes have to occupy. Was this you know, the site of that type of compromise as well? I sort of used that language quite, I tried to use it specifically, you know, I spoke about middle place and when I was speaking about that, it was really distinctively trying to draw an alignment between the kinds of losses that we I'd been going through losses of family members and losses of elders in my community and the effect that that was having on my sense of my own identity, particularly given that, you know, as somebody who has grown up in a community that they're not technically in the sense of being, you know, a traditional owner from, um, I was losing some of the old people who were a part of my Bundjalung family and knew them, losing that kind of like oral connection to relatives, you know, people who were still in the world who could say, yeah, I remember your great-grandfather, I remember that. That was creating a really explicit sense of dislocation for me and, um, you know, I was able to with a lot of this stuff right through it making it make sense to myself or not even making it make sense but actually really more so just about witnessing and about being a witness to my own changing sense of of identity and such and you know we are formulated in many ways through the texts that we read and respond to and I was trying to think through the person that had been made from these texts I could not completely disentangle from but you know we are colonized through literature and our resistance to that I think has a capacity to be literary you know we are not in a post-colonial society in Australia the invaders are still here they've never left and you took that interrogation further as well by speaking to you know generations of Aboriginal elders about some of these ideas that you've just kind of talked through there what did they say about some of these nostalgic Australiana children's stories and the representations within them? So that was one of the really interesting things. Um, A lot of Aboriginal people actually know a lot of these texts really, really well and um, were similarly, similarly quite liked them. And it took me a while to work out that that was likely due to that mass circulation that was putting a lot of these books in mission schools. So they were actually probably books that people's, you know, grandparents had read, great-grandparents had read or had read to them. And there was a sense of familiarity there through that kind of notion almost of like a sort of a literary inheritance. So um, many Aboriginal people that I spoke to were quite charmed by those stories um, and 
remembered them quite fondly, whether the aesthetics of them or the actual narratives or the characters. If you think about these books for even like 30 seconds, you're kind of like, actually, this is really sus. But there was still this strong aesthetic drive that made them so charming and lovely for so many people. Um, And that's what's kept them so much in recirculation. And it's not to say that they're actually necessarily in in of themselves completely bad books. And the other thing that I'd point out is that any time you buy a May Gibbs product, um, whether it be a tea towel or a book or like marshmallow baby lotion, which is legitimately a product you can buy, every time you buy that, there is a donation made to one of two different disability charities. So they're not in themselves like moral evils. They're absolutely not. They just are invested in an image that is not constitutive of the actual nation that they're trying to endorse. Now, those kind of more um, colonial aesthetic representations are not the only imagery that your collection shares. And you have some really vivid, beautiful imagery in the poem Drop Bear Poetics. Um, And you write about Tiddalik. Can you tell us a bit about who Tiddalik is? Yeah, so I was pretty careful to make sure that as much as possible I was speaking to cultural stories that were relatively known. So a lot of Aboriginal people and even non-Aboriginal people are familiar with the story of Tiddalik. Um, every culture has a flood story and this is part of ours. And um, to give like a brief kind of summary, Tiddalik drank all of the water and swallowed all of the water and the entire land was um, was barren and dry and all of the different all of the different animals had to try and trick him to spill out the water so that the um, the waters could come back and so that the land would then you know be green and healthy and nourished again and so Tiddalik is often understood as a as a symbol of greed but there's there is actually more complexity to the story there um and you know cultural stories always have multiple layers of meaning but it was definitely like I was happy with choosing a figure like Tiddalik because I think that familiarity um, of a symbol of greed can be something that so many people resonate with because we're often that's a story that I that like most Aboriginal people certainly that I know have grown up with about greed and about warning against greed and you know really trying to demonstrate that about the communal harm that will occur if you make selfish choices um, and the consequences that will arise of that. So Tiddalik can no longer drink now, um, and that's because frogs don't drink through their mouths. They actually drink through their skin. So, you know, it's about teaching um, consequence and responsibility as well. And the poem ends with a set of lines that they almost feel like a moral to the story, which are, we aren't here to hear you poem. You do wrong, you get wrong, you get gobbled up. What were you describing there? Yeah, so listen, there's a kind of reoccurring motif throughout the collection about swallowing and gobbling and the kind of the consequences of bad behaviour, particularly of bad faith behaviour. That poem, in that instance, I was thinking about the way in which people attempt to speak for land and take up human subjectivities um, or impose human subjectivities on land and on spirits and animals Uh, which are for us relations you know you don't get to speak for them that's not culturally appropriate and you know um uh, aboriginal stories are are, you know there's two very strong themes in dreaming stories it's either about creation you know there's an ideological function about telling us about the way that the world works and about the laws that will allow it to be in its most um 
safe and balanced structure. And then there's transgression stories and there's transgressions about what happens if you do the wrong thing. And we've got just as many transgression stories as we've got creation stories. And so I actually deliberately kind of wanted to style this as a kind of disavowal of the way in which white poetics wants to aestheticize our creation stories without ever actually being willing to take responsibility for the transgression that is at the heart of it. And the irony is that I wrote this poem, I wrote Drop Bear Poetics as a submission for a um, special edition of poetry themed around like, oh, what would the animals say? You know, write a poem that speaks for the animals. And I sent this poem in and a few others as a kind of a send up of it. And um, one that I did as well send in was um, actually just a more straightforward poetic treatment of a dreaming story that's very familiar in my family. And the response that I got back was, oh, well, I want that one. I want the unproblematic, unpolitical um, uh, embrace of dreaming culture, but I don't want I don't want the political one. So I added that last line. Uh, I I said you can't have any of them in that case and I added that last line and ended up coming third in the Judas Wright Poetry Prize with it. So evidently someone liked it. Um, And the kind of in the process of that poem kind of like, you know, through that rejection it developed another kind of additional meaning uh, that spoke to that that transgression. So yeah, the, the kind of the consequence for speaking where you're not meant to be spoken for, I guess, is to get gobbled up in my own kind of weird moral landscape, I suppose. That became so meta because of that additional um, layer. Um, in case you weren't dealing with enough complexity, just in terms of the themes that you're writing about, you also wrote the collection at a time when Australia was grappling with and recovering from the 2019 bushfires and then the pandemic and then all of that uncertainty since. How was the collection shaped by those external factors? Yeah, I think um, the, so the collection was written over a period of a couple of years, but it kind of came together and many of the new poems um, that were kind of outside of that explicit project of the, the kind of the anti-Australiana were kind of added in in the last sort of few months where, you know, the world was burning and then it was isolating and it was just a really strange and unsettling time. And that kind of spoke to, again, that, kind of complex relationship between witnessing and complicity and, you know, whether you're you're kind of your consumption of whether it be grief or angst or anxiety is in itself kind of reconstituting the same patterns of disengagement and um, apathy. And I was really trying to think about um, what it it meant to witness um, when the world is burning or dying in one way or another. Um, and I was thinking so much about the idea of relics and of fossils at the time as well. And so it became important to catalogue the time and to speak to the time and to create some kind of impression of what that was like, even if it didn't necessarily thematically align with the ambitions, the sort of philosophical ambitions of the collection, it was still about articulating what was going on and what was there so we do keep witness and we do keep memory and relic and fossil or whatever it is.
Laura Murphy-Oates here. If you're enjoying the podcast we make at Guardian Australia, you should check out the Guardian Weekly magazine. It's a roundup of the most prominent news stories from Australia and across the globe. And at the moment, you can get 50% off an annual subscription, including home delivery, no matter where you live. Just search for Guardian Weekly Subscription to find out more. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Dropper has been received with a lot of acclaim, including winning the Stella Prize, but it is interesting in the context of the actual arts industry in Australia, which I feel isn't always conscious of or reflective of the impact of colonisation on the way that we think about and celebrate Australian poetry. And I feel that's something that you do unpack in Drop Bear. So who are you addressing in the poem to the poets? In its most explicit formation, I think to the poets was trying to speak to this generation of Australian writers who um, kind of settled or became complacent with the idea of themselves as progressives and then, like, never attended another protest after Vietnam or something like that. Um, And I was particularly taking aim at the sort of the neoliberal claims of Australian political history and nationalist histories and really thinking about um, who they serve and who they have discluded and foregone. And, you know, and that has a class implication as well that I think you were kind of um, hinting about as well in the arts community because that's predominantly like a boomer generation, a generation of people who were able to, you know, take progressive values but still have a house and still have a free education and there were the benefit of the Whitlam years and the stronger Labor governments than we've had for a very long time. And so they grew up in a different political landscape where there was a unification behind political struggles and questions like, you know, the Vietnam War, like the 67 referendum, and they get to feel good about that and they get to feel like they achieved something and that there's some kind of bizarre cultural disconnection where we don't understand all of their kind of challenges and complexities now, decades and decades later. But this was these were the people who were, generally speaking, quite middle class or maybe working class and white in a context in which immigration, Australian immigration, was still in the full throes and longstanding implications of white Australian policies. Like they're the ones who produced a lot of the hostility to the incoming, you know, different waves of migration from, you know, from Vietnam, from, you know, Asia that had been previously excluded. We were in a very different political landscape and their kind of claims to progressiveness and claims to 
this generation of great Australian activists were not at all commensurate with a kind of an ongoing commitment to the arts community, commitment to progressive values in broader society. Not for all of them, certainly, like I'm generalising here, and many of them have kept up political commitments and sensibilities, but just as many and more of them are quite comfortable with what they got out of that period and don't feel a need to leave anything for anybody else behind. And that's the same generation of our politicians as well. So in a way, maybe it's anti-boomer perhaps. Um, But, yeah, generally speaking, I wanted to speak to that neoliberal false progressive class I'm not really interested in talking to the outright racists or to the not that you can't be an outright racist and neoliberal in fact Mm -hmm. um but I, I was specifically trying to speak there to the comfortable middle class who feels um assured and never unsettled in their commitments and convictions because they're never tested that is something that you actively raised in your acceptance speech for the Stella Prize as well. Um, you know, you you really did make a strong, passionate political statement around that inequality that exists in the arts and the economic barriers that are presented to, um, you know, people from working class or marginalised contexts who um, can't take the same liberties with their artistic pursuits when, you know, you have to put food on the table. Do you feel like having the reception that Drop Bear has had has helped to open up some of those conversations? I'm not sure. I mean, the election that it was going into really didn't have much discussion about the arts in general. And we had a successful Labor government and we've had the period of national cultural policy submissions and consultation processes around that. I'm generally expecting a better put for the arts and what we have had at least since Rudd but probably actually you know since Keating um so I'm expecting an improvement on those conditions um but I'm not relying on it you know I don't know if if that speech had much to do with with any of it but I certainly do know that it was it had a lot of views and hopefully that kind of focused a discussion a little bit more explicitly you know there were people in comments and stuff who were saying well a lot of other industries are doing it hard too. And the kind of the point of that is that like we should not have a condition in which, you know, the producers of the, you know, one of our biggest employers should have to all suddenly retrain um, when by and large actually most arts workers are actually very qualified and in fact too qualified to even pay off the student debts. So, you know, I'm not sure and I don't believe in individual act- action having a collective response in any kind of meaningful way as well. But if it was useful for people to show the video to somebody and say, actually, like, let's, you know, let's talk about this. I would be very happy, you know, with that. I got, I I had a lot of people reach out to me who were like way too famous to be talking to me. So that was quite astonishing. It's pretty clear from talking to you that your politics are kind of inherently enmeshed with your art um, and everything that you create. And I felt like that really came across right at the end of Drop Bear, where you wrote the material and political reality of the colonial past, which Indigenous people inherit, is also a literary one. Our resistance, therefore, must also be literary. How do you navigate success in a traditional sense with also seeking to critique those same kind of traditional literary institutions? How do you keep that resistance while also, you know, seeking to have a a long-term career as a poet and a writer? I don't actually enjoy most of the kind of surrounding context of, of, like, success in this space. Like, the fact that, like somebody who lives on my street was like, 
oh, I saw you in the paper. That was horrible for me. I hated that. Um, so a lot of it I dislike immensely, but I also recognize that there's a kind of a platform that comes with that, that I've tried to use as much as I've had the energy to. Uh, I've said no to an insane amount of stuff though. And I'm really so grateful for my publisher, the University of Queensland Press, understanding that I need to say no to things and that I don't want to agree to the majority of the things that I'm offered, even if they're going to be good for my career. And many of the things would have been excellent for my career. And if I wanted to take them up, I would have been richer and more famous and all of those sorts of things. But I don't have that interest because I think that this sort of celebrity context of authorship is really damaging and very very harmful for the reader as well as for the kinds of arts workers that are involved in those in those contexts so you know I look forward to as I keep writing I look forward to being able to take particular kind of convictions to different things but that's not necessarily unique, you know, like looking at Jennifer Down and the um, not only the acceptance speech that she gave for the Miles Franklin, but as well the the subsequent donations that she made and the political statements that she made at the Sydney Writers' Festival about, you know, that, that were informed by the platform that she had with the Miles Franklin. And, you know, and it was really lovely. She gave me a shout out about that and like perhaps reminding people of some stuff. But the reality is that like, these kinds of spaces are often a space of political um, resistance and refusal. You know, Melissa Lukashenko uses every single speech that she ever gets to accept anything or to speak on anything to talk about injustice, whether that be housing inequality, whether that be incarceration, um, whether that be queer and trans rights. Like, she's an incredible activist in that regard and takes up those platforms. And it concerns me that we don't always hear about those kinds of speeches. And so the politics of whose activism is deemed appropriate by the discourse is really interesting in that. I really loved reading your collection because it troubled my sense of what Australian poetry, quote unquote, is, you know, based on what is kind of spoon fed to us through the curriculum and things like that. So do you, do you think that there is a shift happening in the way that we collectively think about Australian poetry, maybe in contrast to that idea of, you know, bush poets um, being typically white settlers writing about a rural or a, um, or a country idea of Australia. Is that, is that changing? I think it is, but I think it's been changing for a couple of decades or, you know, perhaps more explicitly the last decade or so. You know, I wouldn't have been able to write this book if I hadn't read Alison Whitaker's Black Work or Janine Lane's Walk Back Over or Natalie Harkin's Archival Poetics. You know, there's a lot of really interesting work here going on, particularly in First Nations poetry, I will say, but but not exclusively. There's been a lot of really cool work that's been going on about speaking back and calling back to the archive uh, and to those documents and to those different structures. And there's been a lot of experimentation engaged with that. So I think that we're at a good time for that. But I also just think that it's improving for poetry more broadly. Like I think that there's more opportunities for people to get published and to get their work distributed now, which I want to see more of, you know, like it's still a massive underrepresentation. You know, Drop Bear was literally the only book of poetry that was even shortlisted for anything at the Australian Book Industry Awards last year, this year, technically, I think, actually. That's shocking. Like it's absolutely shocking that there's this whole category of literature that takes a lot of time and energy and expertise, just doesn't get a look in and often just is 
is not even sold in in bookshops. So it's really disconcerting, but I am hoping that the Stella's decision to include poetry in the listings will help that and will help inform that and create a better commercial space. Thank you so much. No worries. If you liked this episode, I think you'd also like Paul Daly's episode with Tara June Winch and Thomas Mayer on Indigenous masculinity. You can check it out in our feed. And next week, you'll hear Gomorrah writer and academic Amy Tunick in conversation with Lucy Clark. Together, they discuss Amy's memoir, Tell Me Again, and how pregnancy and parenthood prompted a reckoning for Amy. This episode was produced by Alison Chen, mixed by Tim Jenkins, theme music by Camilla Hannon. The series producer is Jane Lee. Molly Glassy is the executive producer. I'm Zoya Patel. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us. It really helps us to find more listeners. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading.